Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, this week's episode of the Religion Prof Podcast. I'm very happy to have as my guest today, uh, Jeremiah Bailey, uh, who's at uh, Baylor University and who I've known for uh, quite some time. And we haven't actually managed to figure out exactly how long, but it goes back into the, uh, the heyday or dark old days or whatever one wants to call it of biblioblogging when uh, there was a lot of activity through that particular medium. Uh, some of those blogs have fallen by the wayside. Uh, many people have moved to other social media to uh, maintain a presence and connection with one another. And we've remained connected through Facebook and other means. Uh, up until recently, around a shared interest in New Testament, early Christianity, but very recently discovering that we have another shared interest, which we'll uh, be sure to get to at some point in today's episode. So welcome to the show, and let me give you a chance to say a little bit about uh, yourself and introduce yourself to listeners. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I am a uh, sixth-year PhD candidate at Baylor University, uh, writing under Bruce Longnecker. And uh, I'm working on my, plugging away at my dissertation, which is on um, First Clement, actually. So I'm a New Testament, early Christianity kind of joint focus person. And uh, uh, when I'm in the New Testament, I do a lot on, on Paul and uh, some on Jude. But uh, most of my work these days is on, on First Clement. So I'm, I'm working uh, uh, slowly but steadily uh, on that dissertation, trying to, trying to get that done. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't realize that we actually have a an indirect. You have an indirect uh, Durham connection uh, as well. Then, oh, right. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, my uh, doctor father will be your doctor uh, gross father. Is that's right? <laughs> I don't know if they use that terminology. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And I think another. I should probably should have said that we have multiple shared interests, not least of which mm-hmm. is uh, things like biblioblogging, and uh, you know, counts as a shared interest, but also uh, not being limited just to the New Testament, right? Exploring the sort of broader context and phenomenon of early Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I gather we also like uh, paying attention to things that uh, other people are neglecting, um, not least because it means that there's more room to write about it, but also because oftentimes those things are just so fascinating. That's right. So, um, yeah, what's your interest in the postcard of Jude? Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I... I really got interested in Jude by way of uh, tracing back a Second Temple Jewish tradition. Uh, I was um, working on um, something actually related to to Romans 1, and I noticed that there was this sort of um, common uh, thing that happens in in a bunch of Second Temple uh, uh, Jewish texts, where we start getting sort of lists of um, catastrophes uh, that are related to divine judgment, and then sort of using those lists um, as examples um, for what will happen to later to later groups. So we see one of those in uh, in Jude, where uh, it talks about the angels that uh, that abandoned their station uh, and uh, uh, the watchers. And it compares them uh, also to uh, the men of men of Sodom. And if you trace back that tradition, there's actually something like um, a dozen uh, Second Temple uh, Jewish texts uh, uh, that uh, that do exactly that. They have these kind of lists of of uh, of God's um, kind of judgment. And uh, I found that fascinating uh, in relation to to Jude. 
um, uh, because I was trying to trace the uh, development of that tradition in the New Testament. So there's examples of that in Jude, that are, Jude and Second Peter, of course, uh, but there's also potentially one in Luke. And what I was also kind of arguing indirectly is that there was also one in, in uh, Romans 1. So uh, I argued that the, um, I know this sounds a bit out there without having the whole, the whole argument, but I was, I was uh, suggesting that in fact, um, uh, the famous comment in, in Romans 1 that's commonly interpreted as being about um, a condemnation of, of homosexuality was actually just part of this uh, tradition um, talking about um, kind of uh, uh, these uh, acts of, of divine judgment. Uh, so um, <clears throat> the, yeah. the, uh, unnat the women following unnatural lust is actually about women, uh, in my opinion, about women who um, uh, went with the watchers. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, that got that's very far. Interesting. No, no, very, not at all. Very uh, far afield. But that's how I got yeah. into Jude stuff. And then once I started reading other Jude stuff, I just found uh, a lot that I thought uh, was was very interesting there. So you don't get a lot of discussion of Jude mm. um, uh, because it's so short, of course. And, and you know, somebody wrote the one good commentary on on Jude, and it kind of it kind of gets ignored after that. But uh, but that was just sort of my my segue point. I was actually doing some work on, on Romans one, and then I ended up getting into all sorts of literature on, on Jude. So, um, I, I've wanted to go back and do more, but I haven't really had that much time. I did yeah. a few, uh, SBL papers and that was kind of, kind of it. So. Okay. So before I forget, and for the benefit of listeners who may not know, I, it may be shocking to you, but there may be some who won't know the answer to this question. Uh, uh which, which is that one good commentary on Jude? Oh, no, no, I'm gonna blank now. <laughs> it's the like uh, word commentary that uh, who wrote that? Um, oh, the Second Peter and Jude. Yeah, uh, that, it's the only one that's like really long and. Very, did Richard Bauckham write that? Yeah, it's Bauckham. I it think. It is Bauckham. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Okay. So I'm I'm yeah. just kidding, of course. Yeah. There's many there's many other good <laughs> good commentaries, but not many people are willing to devote what I'm sure was the amount of time that uh, Bauckham devoted to to yeah. those two texts. So. Indeed. Well, I wonder, given the, the amount of interest there currently is in Romans 1, for the reasons you mentioned, mm -hmm. whether you might not be able to uh, write something for a general audience that would harness that interest, and mm -hmm. by way of Romans and by way of you know, contemporary debates about same-sex relationships and things like that, mm -hmm. um, lure them in to discover uh, the letter of Jude. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. Maybe I can trick yeah. people into caring about Jude. Yeah. Um, some. You know, as, as, you know, as educators, you know, sometimes we're very idealistic, but sometimes we're like, if I have to trick you into learning something, uh, trick you into finding this interesting, and then you take <laughs> it from there, we'll do what's necessary, right? You know, uh, so. yeah. So I think if we were to rewind, you know, sort of the, the field of New Testament, early Christianity, a few decades, uh, we could start there and then move backwards for, you know, hundred years, several hundred years, something like that, and mm -hmm. find that there, there wasn't, at least in Protestant circles, um, as much interest in extra-canonical early Christian literature, uh, those works that are uh, known collectively as the Church Fathers, things like that, as I think there is now um, in mm -hmm. Protestant circles and in evangelical circles, right, rediscovery of uh, sort of the, 
the history between the book of Revelation, as it were, and mm-hmm. the Protestant Reformation. And so what's your, what's your feeling being someone who's working in that? Is it, are, are you still something of an oddity in a, a kind of a, a, a Protestant scholarly setting, or is this much more the norm nowadays than it used to be? Uh, well, I think it's, it's definitely heating up, right? So if we just look at, at publishing the last few years, um, there's now the Oxford Apostolic Fathers Commentary Series, um, and uh, they're slowly uh, adding volumes to that. Some of the Hermeneia volumes that have been kind of languishing are finally uh, about to, to come out on the Apostolic Fathers. So we're definitely getting a lot more, a lot more publishing in that area. I was actually involved in a um, program unit, which is sadly now defunct, but it was called Texts and Traditions in the Second Century. And I can say that uh, from being in the background and, and dealing with some administrative tasks there and seeing how many people were submitting papers to that, uh, to that program unit, we never uh, lacked for, for papers. We honestly had to turn so many very, very um, interesting sounding uh, proposals away. And there's still, uh, even though Texan Traditions is gone, there's still a program unit at SBL called Inventing Christianities, which is a wonderful um, program unit that everyone should go to. It's, they've always got kind of fascinating ideas um, uh, for themes and things. Uh, from what I'm observing, there's a lot going on in sort of that, uh, uh, you know, ne- what was often called the neglected century or the, mm. the I, think, uh, I think a few years ago, uh, Larry Hurtado called it the, the uh, Cinderella uh, century, um, this kind of uh, uh, put off thing that actually has a really great value. So um, I know there's like a, a new um, Cambridge companion to the Apostolic Fathers that's coming out, edited by by Mike Bird. So I, I definitely think uh, I think there's a there's a lot going on in this area, and we're seeing I think some of the some of the more traditional boundaries between um, canonical and non-canonical texts kind of breaking down. Because we all understand as, as historians that these, um, these barriers are in some sense artificial, right? Mm. So we think in the case of a first Clement, first Clement is probably as a document older than some of the um, texts that actually make it into the New Testament, right? If we think of maybe something like a second Peter, which might be, you know, very late, uh, it's quite possible that, um, you know, First Clement was written before, before uh, Second Peter is. So why, as historians, would we uh, consider one thing part of our, you know, as New Testament scholars, why would we consider Second Peter within our purview, but not a text uh, like like First Clement? So I, I definitely see a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, barriers breaking down, and I'm definitely seeing from the evangelical world, interestingly. Um, a lot, uh, a lot more experience uh, or interest, excuse me, than than in the past. So uh, I think that's that's fascinating. Obviously, for me, uh, writing my dissertation on First Clement, I'm hoping that that this interest in the Apostolic mm-hmm. Fathers and early Christianity will, um, broad, more broadly speaking, will will continue. Uh, but uh, I do think that's the trend. So, uh, I mean, how many papers can we write on Romans, right? Mm-hmm. We've got to well, we do something else, right? Well, well, clearly we can write quite a few, but <laughs> there is something refreshing. I think uh, we both agree in working in an area where there are, you know, it's, it's less a question of trying to find some new angle on something that's been studied and debated for so long and finding that there are questions that really are neglected and which mm-hmm. haven't gotten the attention that they're due. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even apart from, you know, I mean, for some people, it'd be like, why should I be interested in Second Peter, but not First Clement? They'll be like, well, one's in the canon, one's in the Bible, and what is it? Uh, but, yeah. you know, people who study the Bible passionately with an interest, uh, both scholars and lay people, appreciate the value of works like, you know, the works of Josephus, Philo, mm-hmm. things that are contemporary. Yeah. And so, Regardless of one's view on, you know, how much attention should you give to canonical versus non-canonical and those kinds of questions, these works should be getting more attention as part of the broader world, close in time and space, but reflecting, you know, the phenomenon of early Christianity, but close in time and space to the New Testament writings themselves, if that's what you're mostly interested in. Yeah, I agree completely. And if we want to understand uh, how early Christians are dealing with the texts of the New Testament, uh, there's no better place to look than uh, texts like uh, the Apostolic Fathers. Because uh, we're getting, you know, I, there's all sorts of debates, for example, about uh, where exactly you, you uh, date uh, First Clement. But uh, even if it's, you know, early second century, we're talking about a very, very early witness to, uh, to the reception of some of Paul's letters. We see how early Christians are taking those kind of a canonical building blocks or so we would call them and uh, doing different things with them, you know, uh, even uh, within a few, few centuries, uh, putting their own sort of uh, interpretations and, and spins on those texts. So uh, if you want to understand what early Christians thought about the, about the texts uh, that, uh, that we're supposed to be uh, experts on, uh, then you kind of can't avoid uh, dealing with the, with the second and early third century. So. Yeah. And I probably should, you know, maybe I should apologize, given that you're, you have devoted six years of your life to uh, studying <laughs> uh, First Clement, that I didn't say, hey, I should get you on the show to talk about Clement. And that, that should have been a spark in and of itself. It should have been adequate. Um, but that said, you know, it was something else that sort of jumped out at me and said, oh, gosh, we have this in common, too. We should chat and geek out and mm-hmm. um, you know, talk with one another about uh, this other thing. And of course, I haven't told people listening to the podcast what that other thing is. And so uh, it's probably time, high time we let them in on that. And that's that you are also a science fiction author. That's right. And so uh, I remember when I saw that on Facebook that you had posted that you had a, a story published uh, in a volume called, um, it's the Thrilling Tales series, uh, Robots and Artificial Intelligence Short Stories. Uh, that in itself grabbed my interest. I was like, oh, hey, we've got to talk more about that. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, I contacted the publisher with a view to doing the podcast and said, can you send me a copy of this? Uh, they, they did so. Um, I opened it. And of course, if I was looking for Jeremiah Bailey, I wouldn't have uh, found it. That's but right. <laughs> found, found, the, uh, found it under your uh, pen name, but with the title Fiat Lex. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, immediately said, okay, so this is, this is a bibliophile and a <laughs> biblical studies and, you know, study of early Christianity and of the Bible, uh, who's going to do something fun with this. And so I, I immediately was excited and was not at all disappointed, really loved the story. That's uh, kind of you to say. Oh, no, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and as somebody who has, you know, dabbled a little bit and is uh, hoping to do more of that myself, uh, in fact, I just finished a, a, a short story about uh, robots and sort of it's it's not really about artificial intelligence but it's about robots uh, so it's it's rather different from yours but I've also found myself collaborating with a colleague in computer science to do things about uh, AI in the 
uh, present and near, very, very near future sense uh, and how that intersects with ethics and religion, things like that. And you know, writing fiction is a great way of exploring that. But how, you know, say, say a little bit about how you, how you ended up doing that. How long have you been writing fiction? How long have you wanted to do something like this? And uh, how great is it that it's finally out? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the way this got started is all kind of a little bit funny. I haven't been writing for a long time at all. Um, it was about uh, a year from last December. Uh, uh, so not the December that, that just happened, but the one before that, where I was feeling a little um, bit of writer's block on my dissertation. And I thought, you know, I've always been uh, a fan of, of fiction. Um, and I had written a little bit of uh, fiction uh, during seminary, but never never consistently, uh, I thought, you know, one way uh, that I could sort of prime the pump to write, to work, work on my dissertation when I feel writer's block is to write fiction for just a, for just a little while. And so I sat there and thought, okay, uh, I need some ideas. And I was just sort of um, casting about and, and um, in the biblical material for something uh, that I could I could uh, uh, possibly work from, and I it, I uh, remembered seeing um, in the past this coincidence that there is um, you know the figure uh, uh, Rahab the the kind of prostitute who famously helps the Israelites. Well, I sort of noticed there was um, also sort of uh, sea monster also named uh, Rahab that um, shows up in uh, some of these uh, later texts, like uh, Psalms and stuff. And I thought, oh, well, uh, in good sort of uh, speculative uh, Midrashic fashion, what if I wrote a short story that, uh, you know, connected these two and made them somehow uh, the, um, the kind of uh, same person? So I, I came up with this whole crazy uh, explanation for how these were actually uh, the uh, the same figure and wrote this uh, really bizarre kind of uh, <laughs> kind of fantasy uh, retelling of you know ancient Near Eastern uh, mythology that wove in uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, figures you know uh, so of course then we have this you know primordial monster of chaos Rahab who ends up getting uh, um, uh, transformed into uh, the character that we're familiar with uh, from the other story. So it was just totally weird, uh, but it was just something I did uh, just to sort of get my fingers moving, you know, but at the end of that, once I had like finished the story, I thought, wow, I really enjoyed uh, doing that. Even if this never sort of uh, uh, sees the light of day. And I also found that just the, the practice of using my imagination to um, think about these kind of speculative stories also seem to help me make uh, analytical analytical connections in, in texts because I feel like it's the same kind of part of our brain that actually uh, works in, in both cases. It's the imagination. So uh, I, I was feeling these benefits. I was enjoying it. It was very relaxing to me. So then I just started like coming up with ideas, uh, writing things down. And, uh, and so I was like, wow, um, maybe I should try to, to publish some of these, these uh, short stories I've been kind of churning out. And, um, so I, I literally just Googled, like, how do you publish mm. science fiction stories? And I started learning about, uh, about um, how the industry works uh, 
and uh, apparently it's been you know kind of a, a common thing to publish science fiction anthologies and you know looking back I've definitely uh, read some myself but I never knew how they sort of sort of got the people you know coming from academic the academic world I always sort of imagined that it was like that where somebody was you know the editor and called around to their friends and, and got stories or whatever you know the way we might organize an edited volume but it doesn't work that way at all often and so I learned that there were um, uh, basically open calls like a like a call for papers almost mm. and people would send in to these publishers uh, all sorts of uh, uh, stories and then they would have basically multiple levels of, of editorial filtering. So, you know, the intern reads it and if it's decent, it goes up to the next person. And if it's decent, it goes up to the next person. And then finally they have an editorial meeting and decide, you know, which stories uh, get in to the anthology and, uh, and which don't. And so uh, that's uh, how I went very quickly from doing something uh, uh, random to help me write my dissertation to being a, being a, you know, published uh, science fiction author. So it was like the, it's like the third or fourth short story I wrote, I sent in to, to Flame Tree Press, it's a UK publishing company that published this, uh, this anthology. And that was like in February, you know, I just started in December. So I didn't, I didn't really think that any of these uh, uh, stories were going to get picked. And then in April, I found out uh, uh, that it would be <laughs> that it would be in the volume. So it was, mm. it was very shocking to me, actually, that uh, that it happened. I, I uh, felt like I maybe got a little bit of uh, uh, beginner's luck going or something. So yeah, so I was very uh, very thrilled to add that to my uh, my repertoire, and I've got uh, uh, a bunch of stories that are almost finished that I need to get back to. But, mm. you know. I've got academic writing to do too. So it's, it's a little hard to balance everything. Uh, yeah. Right yeah. But I, I definitely can relate to that. You know, I've just now have, you know, several different projects, none of which are, you know, at all related to one another, you know, just mm -hmm. all over. And part of that is that my interests have always been like that, you know, easily distracted right. and, you know, lots of side interests and things like that. Way. But I'm finding at the moment, you know, it's, it's actually helpful that, you know, I'm not sitting around saying, okay, I've got to come up with something for this project. I can say, okay, well, then let me think about this one for a bit, or let me, uh, let me work on a short story and see what happens or, you know, and having multiple things going, I think actually is, you know, some people would say, well, doesn't that, you know, interfere with the writing process? Isn't it distracting? Aren't you taking on too much? And I've found the opposite. You know, that it actually, they become mutually invigorating, even though they're not related to one another, and maybe even because they're not related to one another. No, I, I agree with you completely. Um, following what you're interested in the moment makes it feel not like work. Yeah. You know, and that's the, the even the academic stuff. So that's what uh, uh, really, really gets me motivated and, and, uh, and uh, to keep pushing through when I'm, you know, tired or busy or whatever. So I'm, I'm the same way, 100%. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure some people, you know, I, because I'm con I'm connected. We're both connected with lots of people in academia, uh, in our field and related fields. Um, one obvious question is, does something like this go on your CV or not? Well, <laughs> I I am leaning towards no, mm -hmm. and that's the kind of advice I've actually uh, been given by other people, because and this is unfortunate, but from what I've heard, there's a bit of a perception that uh, if you're writing fiction, you know, things that the Academy doesn't necessarily think are, 
are worthwhile uh, that, um, you know, your supervisor or, you know, your, uh, if you get that, if you get one of those elusive tenure track hires, your department chair might be wondering why you're spending that time writing something not related <laughs> to the field instead of, you know, publishing, publishing more articles. Um, I don't know if that advice uh, is good. I'm following it right now just because I don't, I don't know better, but I do feel like uh, the way uh, humanities is, is moving, we're kind of going in a more interdisciplinary direction broadly. And uh, I think if you're going to a university where you're expected to not just teach in your limited area, but teach religion broadly, teach, you know, culture. Uh, so like here at Baylor, we have the Baylor Interdisciplinary Core, mm -hmm. and you might in the BIC uh, teach a class on religion and science fiction. You know, that would be a very normal sort of thing mm -hmm. uh, to, to show up. So I think if you're going to an environment like that, it actually could be an advantage to say, hey, you know, by the way, I am a, I am a, a writer that does this also. Uh, but uh, yeah, for now, I'm just keeping all that uh, uh, separate. Yeah, I mean, what I've what I've done is just stick them all the way at the end, essentially. You know, after <laughs> all the conference papers, reviews, and say that there's just other stuff. You know, occasionally things like you know editorials or whatever. You know, just other stuff that it's like it might be worth mentioning on here, but yeah, you know, it's not the sort of thing that I expect anyone to count for tenure. You know, as a, as a right. publication of the same sort as is expected. Right. But yes, I think I think oftentimes uh, people, especially people who maybe study at, you know, very research oriented institutions where they're trying to prep people to apply for jo jobs at those kinds of institutions. And so saying, be very focused and very productive in research and do nothing else and think nothing else. And institutions that have a strong core curriculum that expect people to be interdisciplinary, to teach outside of their area, to do creative things in the classroom as well as beyond, uh, often value these things, not instead of the standard research publication, but as long as not instead of that, uh, we'll value these things as well. Right. So I just had a, an idea. I did not come into this thinking that this would be something that would come up because I literally just had the idea, but if we can find a few more people and maybe we'll find them as a result of this podcast who like us dabble in fiction, but are mainly academics as far as profession and career, Maybe we should put together, um, I don't know, a session at SBL or put together an edited volume, an edited academic volume that can go on one CV, uh, regardless of anything else, <laughs> but about being an academic and writing fiction. Oh, that would be fun. Wouldn't it? It would be very fun. Okay, let's, you know, not, not now, not today, not here, because <laughs> just had the idea, but uh, let's, let's keep thinking about that and see if anybody uh, else expresses interest when they hear us talking about it. And let's see where that goes. Maybe we can even encourage a few people out there to start. So that if, you're, too. if you're interested in, yeah. in writing any sort of fiction, I, I think yeah. it's a, a extremely cathartic. So if yeah. you're out there listening to this podcast, give it a shot. Yeah, and I will second that. So I can see how somebody in biblical studies could end up saying, okay, Rahab is the same Rahab, you know, and doing something <laughs> fun with that. How did you end up writing about artificial intelligence? What led you there? Uh, because I'm sure it wasn't a direct single step from First Clement, let's say. No, definitely not. Uh, so, and this is, this is going to sound so weird. So just bear with me. But I first became interested in artificial intelligence 
when I was in like high school and it all had to do with, I don't know if you remember the Terry Schiavo case way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Remember yeah. that? Uh, this just shows you how kids take things. Uh, but when all that uh, kind of stuff happened, this was, for those who don't remember, this is a woman who was in a persistent vegetative state and there was a debate about whether she could be allowed uh, by her uh, husband uh, to die um, uh, uh, so that kind of she wouldn't just stay endlessly in this vegetative state. And her family wanted her to be kept on life support kind of in hopes of a miracle or something. Um, I think they had some religious objections. None of that really, the debate didn't really interest me. Uh, but what I found fascinating as a kid was the idea that consciousness is the determine the determining factor in whether somebody has you know uh, uh, constitutional rights? So naturally, I um, I started imagining as a kid, you know, just doing kid stuff. I was like, wow. So if that's true, uh, like, what would happen if we had like conscious AI? And uh, this. I know this is totally random, but this is uh, uh, where my mind went as a kid. And so ever since then, I've always been sort of fascinated about sort of the philosophical and theological questions that we would have if we were ever able to actually actually do it, you know. Like, uh, uh, I was very interested in theology at that time, too, so um, uh, my mind went that direction as well. Like, if we had an AI and it was conscious and, you know, by whatever definition we want to use for that, like what would that mean uh, uh, theologically? So just getting into those questions um, a long, long time ago made it be something that I've just had an interest in ever since. So I've like read some of the, some of the literature that comes out in the popular media about it. I've been uh, just uh, kind of interested in it. So when I was just randomly kind of searching for ideas uh, to write on, this just came out of nowhere. I don't, I don't know where these ideas come from. Uh, I basically just, um, when I have a random short story idea, uh, write it down in a in a, uh, a Google Notes file on my phone, and then I go back and look through them and say, "Hmm, this sparks interest," and that's that's how I write. So, uh, so I've had a long-standing interest in it because of that case from a long time ago, and. And I think that's part of what uh, I think just that long history of interest um, made it something that naturally appealed to me once I had this kind of random idea. So, yeah, and I think whether it's a, a creative insight on a text that you're studying as an academic or whether it's writing fiction, um, you know, it's a bit like sleep. You know, you can't sort of will yourself to <laughs> be creative. You just have to you, you can create an a setting, a mindset that might foster it, but you can't just make it happen. You just have to be open to it happening. And then, you know, uh, it surprises us sometimes. Absolutely. I don't, I honestly don't know where most of the ideas come from. They just sort of pop in and then you decide once you've had the idea, whether it's something, you know, worth working on or not. Right. I guess it's not that yeah. different from academia, right? When you're reading yeah. a text and you sort of have an idea like, oh, I wonder if this is connected to this you know, tradition or idea or whatever. And then you decide later whether that uh, idea made any sense or not. And sometimes they don't, you know, yeah. sometimes they do. Yeah. So. And I remember work, when I was working on my doctorate, I had to decide, it's like, okay, so am I, go- am I going to take this, uh, this uh, model that I'm trying to apply and just run with it and see how far it goes, even 
in some instances where I'm not sure I've entirely persuaded myself or am I going to, uh, you know, just go with the things that I'm, you know, I'm already convinced of. And mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes it's just running with things. I mean, this, this last story that I was writing was, um, uh, it's about robots in church uh, for in case you're interested, but uh, wrapped uh, just basically have wrapped it up, but had reached a point, you know, of, I've written some very, very short stories that are a bit like, you know, some of the, the old, um, you know, some of the classic, uh, like Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov ones that are almost like just extended jokes with a punchline <laughs> kind of yeah. thing. Um, so it's like about not just my style of writing, but my sense of humor, I think, that I gravitate towards those. But had reached a point which I thought I was going to wrap it up. And then the characters, I realized the characters had more things they could do. And they kind of, you know, they, they, they told me more that they weren't done yet rather than me saying, okay, I need you to do something else here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a common kind of writing experience. It's definitely one I've had as well. I, I often will start with a narrative arc, at least, where I think things are going to go. And I would say at least 60% of the time, it doesn't end like that at all. Either that's just ends up being part one, or once I'm writing it, it goes in a totally different direction. Um, there's all, there definitely is a lot of sort of, of, of uh, serendipity uh, and uh, just sort of feeling the flow of the thing uh, when you're doing uh, when you're doing it. Yeah. So let, let's. I don't want to give any spoilers really about the story, but I also want <laughs> to tell people you should you should read this. Right. Get get a hold of this volume. Um, I confess that I've I've just browsed the rest of it. And I'm looking forward to reading some of the other ones, but. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed your story immensely. I, I loved the way it was set out because it really is these sort of brief dives into the, the life of, you know, this main character and, you know, other associated characters, but, mm-hmm. you know, separated into sections where it's like, you know, 3.5 years later and then 3.5 hours later and then seven <laughs> months later. And it just, I mean, I was immediately grabbed by that mode of storytelling, which was, uh, it's it's not something that you encounter every day. I'm not sure I've ever encountered it before. I mean, there certainly are points where, you know, you have the, the kind of the, the, the pound sign, the number sign or some dashes or something, and there's a break, uh-huh. but but had never had that kind of chronological signposting. And, and it really worked well, I thought. Um, Thank you. Did that just happen because that was, you're like, well, I'm not going to tell this whole thing. I want to fast forward. How do I fast forward in writing or what, how did that come about even the structure to this story? Uh, so it was intentional from the beginning. And the idea was to think about how, um, you know, if you're, if you're an artificial intelligence residing on, you know, a computer, like how do you think of, of time, right? Mm-hmm. What is, what is time even right to, uh, to something that can't age, uh, at least, uh, you know, um, on a computer, what, what is time even other than, you know, a series of, of linear movements, uh, that are recorded, uh, 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 by, by a device. So I wanted the kind of units of time to have that sense of linearity to, uh, sort of, uh, uh, kind of clue the reader in that, um, uh, this has a lot to do with Lex's experience in, in Lex's development. If the, if the, if the title wasn't enough uh, to give away, uh, you know, what the, uh, the focus is uh, in terms of, of 
perception and change. So um, that was a, a conscious choice uh, on my part to uh, uh, sort of think about how time would be delineated by, you know, what is essentially a timeless entity, you know, and uh, round numbers really sort of made sense as a way to, to communicate that. And these sort of temporal gaps allow me to get to the things that are most important in a story that really spans many years, uh, but also sort of can keep that, um, that, that kind of linearity from, from Lex's perspective. So. Yeah. And it, it really, I mean, it allows you, you know, it gives you a, a chance to provide, you know, some natural sort of groupings of the story that, you know, give the keep keep the pace of the narrative but also mm -hmm. allow you to tell someone's life story essentially you know yeah. or, uh, well a human life story and an ai life story as it uh -huh. were um so yeah again i'm i'm determined not to give spoilers uh <laughs> it, but i will say you know it is a story given that it's in a volume on robots and artificial intelligence you know probably that much is not going to surprise anyone right <laughs> once they <laughs> right. once they see that on the cover but there's there's one thing that you know given our field uh, sort of jumped out at me uh, a particular phrase that you use at one point. Uh, i bet i can guess um on page 209 uh and where a character's talking about you know the the state of the law regarding you know rights of you know and status as persons or not as persons of AIs and mentions, you know, it says what is not assumed is not understood. Is that the one you thought I was going to mention? Or? That was the one I thought you were going to yeah. mention. Uh -huh. So I mean, did you just work that in there for kind of theology geeks or was it something that's, that you... That's right. I, I, yeah. uh, I do think it's important actually for the direction uh, of the story. And I do think that... Um, uh, without giving things away, mm. this sort of uh, taking on of, uh, of uh, certain human characteristics mm. would probably logically be necessary for the kind of full incorporation of artificial beings into, into society. But yes, I did work it in there mainly yeah. as, a, as a sort of uh, nerd uh, Easter egg. And I honestly, I do that, <laughs> I do that quite yeah. uh, frequently in my, in, my, uh, in my short stories. I've got another one. Um, called forked that I'm working on that's uh, that's really just based on the premise of what if we could fork human beings like we could fork uh, software as in a way as an attempt to societally improve them uh, and in that story um, uh, there's all sorts of references to uh, uh, the Gospel of Thomas that I put in there just for fun you know because there's all this stuff on duality and and uh, and uh, singularity in the uh, in the Gospel of Thomas. So I just like to work in you know stuff from my kind of primary uh, training just for fun. Okay, sometimes so it, it, sometimes it yields really interesting mm. results for the story too. I mm -hmm. might start I might start doing that just as like a fun thing, and then I might sort of sort of run with it and think, oh, okay, well, yeah this has these sort of implications and they, they really aid sort of the narrative in, in these ways. Yeah. So for those uh, whose exposure to the term forked is only through the good place um, and who might misunderstand, <laughs> uh, could you just say a little bit more about uh, what you mean there? Oh yeah. So uh, in, in like, op this is really common in like open source software, like Linux kind of people. Um, what you will do is let's say you're, you're working on, um, a program 
that you know uh, encodes video or something, right? And uh, the first group of people who are working on it want to go in this direction, uh, or they abandon it. And another group of people who want to come and improve that software will do. They'll create what's called a fork, so a branch off uh, from that piece of software. And from then on, from the point of the branch on, they will only work uh, on and improve that fork of the software, so that branch of the software. So it's a way of creating separate software products from a single uh, uh, original kind of source. So Linux is a great example. I don't know if you're familiar with the Linux operating system, but it started, of course, as a single kernel uh, produced by Linus Torvalds, and now there's uh, you know dozens and dozens of of, uh, of Linux distributions, and many of those have been uh, forked from each other. So somebody will build one sort of style of Linux. And another group will come along and say, I like 80% of this, but I, I absolutely loathe this 20%. So we're going to create a software fork, a new branch of software mm -hmm. uh, that uh, preserves that 80%, but changes that 20%. And then from then on, the products of those two groups will not be perfectly compatible uh, because of that kind of uh, software forking. So yeah, that's the origin of of the of the term you can fork software and uh, uh, it creates different branches of of it uh, that are not always mutually compatible after that and at this point presumably i should say that this has been a forking great conversation right? <laughs> um, i do love the good place yeah. though <laughs> so fantastic and, show yeah so uh, yeah, great to hear about you know some of the other uh, stories and projects that you're working on um you know i hope you know i hope I hope we can you know talk more about the uh, the idea of you know, doing something related to academics writing fiction. Uh, I hope we end up you know publishing some fiction in some of the same places at some point, but you know please do keep me abreast of everything that you're you've got coming out because I enjoy what I've read so far and look forward to reading more and I will say to uh, everyone who's listening just to make sure I highlight it uh, right in the thrilling tales series. Robots and Artificial Intelligence, short stories, uh, came out in 2018 from Flame Tree Publishing. And so definitely recommend checking it out. And yeah, thank you so much, uh, Jeremiah, for being on the show today. Really hey. appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, and, and to anyone who's wondering, my pen name is uh, Nathaniel Hosford, so, uh, which is just my middle name and my grandfather's middle name. But uh, if you're looking for me in that volume, uh, it's... Uh, that's, uh, that's me, Nathaniel Hosford. Yeah, and will that be the, the name probably that some of the other things will be coming out under as well? Yeah, probably. I think I'll just okay. keep that as my pin name. Yeah, so is there a, is there a, a Nathaniel Hosford webpage where we can follow all of your works once there are a few more that are out there? Or, uh... <laughs> well, I did create a, a, a Facebook author page, but uh, it's sadly devoid of, of content. So um, that will probably change soon. Um, I'm pretty sure I like that page. So uh, yeah, you did. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I will encourage others to do likewise. Uh, and I have a I have a, a Twitter also at Beards for Hire, uh, <laughs> which is a reference uh, before anyone freaks out to um, uh, something that that Lucian uh, said and uh, on paid posts and in Roman households. So uh, <laughs> it's not it's not any reference to anything else anyone might be thinking. Uh, yeah. Well, there we go. So thank you for being on the show today. Uh, and to everyone else out there, you know, thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for 
uh, you know, reading uh, my fiction and Nathaniel Hosford's. And uh, to those of you who are academics who write fiction, uh, thank you in advance for uh, reaching out to us and telling us if you think we should uh, do something collaboratively um, around that theme. Uh, that's all for today. Uh, thank you all. Uh, thank you, Jeremiah, once again, and uh, bye for now.